Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending August 7th. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you are going to hear... we had a bit, of, a bit of a chat about what we did on the weekend. It was Melbourne coming into stage four lockdowns. It was a bit of a roller coaster. But yeah, we got through it. And we also talked to Dr. Shane to talk uh, to celebrate Einstein's 30th year anniversary, Einstein to Gogo's 30th year anniversary. Uh, also, um, we had a chat about, um, I, I th- I'm pretty sure I saw snow. It's who knows if I did. I'm pretty sure I did. Also, um, there was a few ducktails in there <laughs> as well, and um, I wrote a small play called "Who Goes Paragliding in a Pandemic." Also, uh, Libby Butler, the creator of a new web series, "Loving Captivity," swung by. We chatted to Libby. Joanne Brecken is the director of Paper Champions, a new rom-com set in Geelong, screening at MIF. And uh, we also spoke with Fee Wright, our regular book reviewer, about Charlie Charlie Kaufman's Aunt, Aunt Kind. And you might notice that my voice changes somewhere in the week, and that's because Rachel Short filled in for me on Wednesday. It's not just me having an off day vocally. Melbourne's own Triple R. What a what a great weekend! <laughs> One of the best <laughs> of all time. <laughs> Uh, just really went up a whole new level on Sunday. Like just, no, nah, it was yeah. great. Talk about um, Sunday, Sunday angsies, like the Sunday blues. It, like it's yeah. like my whole life, I've thought I understood what Sunday angsies were, and then, then yesterday hit. Here we are. Anyway, uh, I I came to Melbourne on um, on on Friday. Got to make make a trip into the big city. What a smart move that was in retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> Exciting, so good. Um, yeah, I came to I came to Melbourne for so I had a I got to do a gig. Woo! Um, but this is a, a thing that's been filmed. Um, so and it was I had to go back into my it was being filmed at where I had my desk so at Stupid Old Studios. Um, so it was like this. On one hand, it was really great to go in and and work. And you know, do some comedy, and you know, see other comedian mates, and um, and that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, I went in and cleaned out my desk, so it's just like I can't justify being paying money for this desk anymore when I haven't been in there for four months or something. So I kind of went, oh, I should. So I had to take, you know, take down my, and it still had. I had up my um my calendar, like from back in April. <laughs> So and it had on oh, like all the the gigs that I had and it had like all the comedy festival and all these other things and I was like oh well that who cares about that um, but it's handy though because it was a colouring in book that I had there so it's good to have that back <laughs> <laughs> um, but the gig was fun though like it was just it was nice to um, yeah just to kind of work. so they just had it, it this will this will go online eventually I think it, like the um, it's through Comedy Festival and, and the Victorian government kind of it'll go on the Victorian government sites and stuff. Um, uh, and it was, yeah, it was fun. So, and they just had, so they set it up like a, an actual comedy room, but it would just, they just had the crew sitting in, in the audience. So they had, and everyone just had a, their own um, like little round table and chair to themselves. Just, so there's only like 10 people just spread out <laughs> everywhere and all wearing masks as well. So, but it was, that was like a really great audience. So it was like, oh, this is 
normal. Crews really have had to step up, haven't they? It, it's. It, I feel like everything television related has turned into Good Morning Australia with Bert Newton. <laughs> <laughs> just velvety up. Is that what you're saying? Most clapping loud. Totally. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, it, was, it was great. I don't was, know it, how... was it emotional clearing out your desk? Uh, a little bit. It was weird. Like normally when I'm in there, there's like um, there's like in in our room, there's like four or five desks in there. And at the time that I would always go in, rarely would I see someone else in there because comedians, like a lot of comedians, at three o'clock in the afternoon, that's when they'll start work. Do you know? Yeah. Like it's just, just at the times that I was in there, I rarely saw someone else. So I was kind of, I walked in going, yeah, this is, I'm just going to pop in. Maybe I'll just sit at my desk for a bit. And because I got there a bit early before the gig. So I thought, oh, it's just time to, you know, just sit and, you know, think about stuff and then clear, clear my desk out, um, thinking that no one else would be in there. Mm. And I walked in and there was a new person in there as oh, well. And I was just weird. like, yeah, yeah, like I knew there was another, you know, comic, but they were talking on the phone um, and having a very long conversation. And then it just felt like, oh, I'm in, I'm in their space now. This is, I've just got to, oh, you know. Oh. Just, uh, it was kind of weird having this. I didn't really kind of get a chance to sit in the moment because there was a phone call happening right yeah. now. Um, I'm dead against going back as a rule. I feel like once it, I, it's happened to me a few times, you leave a workplace and then oh, you come back. It's always sad, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Because there's people that you don't know and you feel like a bit of your soul has been taken away because they've taken it. And you, yeah. You, you, they, don't you, you never, they don't know your story. They don't know your story and you don't matter to them. All those yeah, jokes, no. personal jokes you had with the other people that are still there, they don't matter to these new people. You're just some actual weirdo that's making them uncomfortable. Yeah. It's, it's, it's terribly disconnecting. I don't like it at all. Yeah, you're like a ghost and, and not even a cool ghost. That no, not a cool ghost. To see. No. So you're making me uncomfortable, ghost. You think you're the you're... ghost that left all this shit behind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, they probably oh, bitch come about. Back, you know how you get to the other side? You come back and get all your stuff and you make it home. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do. Just float cool. on out of here. Yeah. Uh, um, oh, you know, we're on Saturday. I actually had a really nice Saturday, except I went to um, Giant Baby Store for the first time. Yeah. Is that uh, what it's called, Giant Baby Store? Well, you know, I think there's yeah. – I don't know how many there are, but I went to one of them, um, which is outside of the five-kilometre radius of my house, so now can't buy – my baby's not going to have a nursery. It's all right. But luckily we went and looked at things on Saturday, so we got an idea about them. Um but we, it was, and, and I've been avoiding it like hell because every time I see one, I would drive past one and have a panic attack because just the mm. idea of having to go in and face the reality of yeah. how much stuff there is to buy for a child. I'm sure, Daniel, you could relate. And I've avoided it, but Andrew said, we're just going to get it done. We need to go and look at prams. I don't even know what a pram feels like. Oh, my God, I should never have started Googling prams because it's just this endless pit of hell of people's opinions about what you need and what you don't need. I've never cared less about something in my life but more about something as well at the same time. Just get one with the cup holder. I know. Literally, I walked in and the first thing when the lady started demonstrating it to me, I said, does it come with a cup holder? And she's like, you can just buy one and attach it. And I was like, okay, there's my priorities. Uh, Yeah. So, I reckon I'm five kilometres from a giant baby store and I'd be five kilometres from you. So oh, 
you, you could reach 10 kilometres if we tag team. Oh, my God. Maybe this is how my child is <laughs> yeah. going to have a nursery because I can. it's going to be convoluted, but I think we can do this, Daniel. Thank yeah. you for volunteering your time. That's, that's a, such a great idea because you know what to get. Is what, like when she says, I want this model, like, yeah. you'll know. I've, I've got a loyalty card. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I like the idea of just being able to send you in the way that Kath's looking for property for us. I'd like to be able to send you. Just go, Daniel, just whatever you think we need, I'm going to take your advice on this. You, you go yeah. and make the decisions and then drop it off to me. Oh, I know the best parking spots. I've spent <laughs> way too much time at these joints. Oh. Uh, but, yes, just just quickly, I suppose, I uh, Friday night when we were in the fog of uh, only being half, just over halfway through the lockdown, um, Attended uh, Andrew McClellan's finishing school, a dance party. Oh, fun. What's so, that? So it was a part of the VCR Fest for Melbourne Fringe. Oh, cool. So there were just hundreds of people zooming in while he DJed and everyone dancing around their houses. Oh, and you could see fun. everyone dancing. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Did you dance? Yeah. We did, yes. Didn't turn the camera on, but but Jesse <laughs> Jesse made me dance. I, I'd never expected to uh, d- to be doing that in my kitchen, but there you go. It's uh, yeah, it was it was it was fun. It was certainly it sound. It feels like a million years ago now, but um, but yeah, I I haven't danced around my house before. It's just not an environment that I would associate with. But did yeah, you feel self conscious. No, look, I turned all the lights off and I made Jessie wear a mask over her eyes, so it's fine. Not really. (laughs) This month marks 30 years on the airwaves for Triple R's flagship science program, Einstein A Go Go, which every Sunday morning explores the wonders of science and its impact on the world. First appearing in 1993 as a guest was Dr Shane Huntington, who soon after joined the team and following the 18-year tenure of Dr Andy, became anchor in 2012. Dr Shane this year was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for service to science as a communicator and to tell us about his time at Triple R and the anniversary celebrations in store, the physicist and broadcaster joins us on the line now. Dr Shane, welcome to Breakfasters. Uh, good morning, guys. How are you going? Excellent. Um, I know it might be hard for you to be scientifically objective, but what impact do you reckon the show's had on the scientific community in Melbourne over the three decades? Well, look, obviously we wouldn't have um, got to the moon without the show. I mean, I think that's <laughs> been demonstrated categorically. Um, it, look, it's an interesting one because I, I don't like to think about that too much because we just do it every week and we do it because we love it. But when we talk to people, what we find is in particular a lot of young researchers get their first ever dip of their toe in the ocean of media. And unlike the commercial stations that are there just to use them as cannon fodder, you know, we really spend a lot of time helping them before they come on the show, making sure they're ready, you know, calming their nerves and just giving them a positive first experience in media and teaching them a lot about communication. And and for me, that that's really important because I remember when I was – you know, young, and I, I got that experience, and it, and it made a huge difference to the way I, I saw communicating science. Mm. What is the role of science communication? Do you think it's changed over time? Yeah, look, it's it's really become far more serious today than it used to be. I mean, if you think about the sorts of issues that the world were, was facing even just 20 or 30 years ago compared to the ones we're facing today. I mean, a, a good example right now is our ability to effectively communicate the need for vaccinations. We're having trouble at the moment getting people to wear masks in the streets because of COVID. 
it is going to be infinitely more difficult to get people to take a, a vaccine when it becomes available. And this will be critical. So if we can't effectively communicate the need for this and remind people that they don't see polio on the streets anymore, then the science really doesn't matter that much. If you can't communicate the science to the general population and to the and to the powers that be, what's the, the point of doing it? It is, it is the most crucial element in my view. I think the greatest... Uh, science communication conundrum of our time is probably global warming. How has that changed in your time on air in in that conversation? Because surely that's been kind of one of the the greatest scientific conversations of the last couple of decades. Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And I think the one of the things that's happened, of course, as as you just pointed out, is we don't call it global warming anymore. We call it climate change. And you can look back through books. I've got books on my shelf here at home that have information about this from, you know, 80 to 100 years ago. It's not new that we knew this would be happening. What's new is the the really catastrophic effects. But something very interesting has happened. Over the last 30 years, we've moved from a point where there was sort of an argument over whether this was occurring or not, to one where today it seems to me as though there are more questions about the scientific process. So if I turn around to you and say, you know, look, sea level rise will be one metre, and then come next week, I say, you know, I've got better data now and it's going to be 0.8 metres. I'm seen as less believable as a result of that. Mm. Now, that's actually the opposite of how science works. We need to update our, our systems and our, and our ideas and our theories. And this is what distinguishes us from something like religion, for example. We, we continually update our knowledge. But we've moved into a state where that's now questioned as to whether or not we're believable anymore. We have to really fight back on this, and that requires very sophisticated science communication, which unfortunately is not taught almost in any universities effectively. And one of the only people who does that is Dr. Jen, who's on Mm. your program once a week. Um, She has a great course at Melbourne University, but there aren't many such programs around, and the ones that aren't are around are actually taught by people who are really quite, you know, average at at the communication stuff. It feels that uh, with the advent of social media, especially in the last decade, there's more amateurs of communicating science. Um, <laughs> and what it's it's certainly a fraught uh, area. You had on the show recently, Associate Professor Margie Danchin from the Royal Children's mm. Hospital. What what l- messages or teachings? can we glean from experts about how to be persuasive as amateurs? Yeah, look, this is this is interesting because Margie is an example of someone who, if I had my way, she would be standing next to both the Premier and the Prime Minister talking about the importance of vaccinations right now, and she would be leading that discussion. And the reason being is she's one of the few science communicators out there who listens to what the public has in terms of fears and concerns before she starts throwing information at them. So she really sort of guides people through some of these, you know, quite scary scenarios uh, in a way that takes into account, you know, what they care about, what they believe, what they're concerned about. And that's what we need to do more of. And there are very few Margie Dantons around, unfortunately. But when we find them, we really need to value that level of expertise in science communication and and put them on a very high pedestal and use them effectively. And I'd, I'd love to see Margie doing that. In fact, if, you know, if the Premier is, I'm sure he's listening to your program, um, <laughs> he should have her there talking about vaccines now. 
not in six or 12 months when we start having a problem with uptake. Do yeah. it now. Get in front of it. Um, and in addition to Margie, who have been some of your favourite guests uh, over the yeah. past eight years? Look, there's been a few. One that I absolutely love talking to was um, Gene Cernan. So the name won't mean many uh, much to many of your listeners, but uh, those of us who love the sort of moon landing stuff will remember he was the last human being to walk on the moon. And we interviewed him on Triple R uh, just a few months before he unfortunately died. And it was one of the one of the best interviews of, of my career. Um, others include people like um, Jocelyn Bell, who we're going to have on again next weekend. Now, Jocelyn is the researcher who discovered the pulsar, which is an astronomical object, and her naughty supervisor got the Nobel Prize for that. She didn't get the Nobel Prize for that. And unfortunately, the amazing people at the Nobel Committee do not change their mind once they've delivered that prize. It's it's widely accepted that she should have got it. But, you know, women in science really struggled back back in those days, as they still do today. So we'll be talking to her again. And I last interviewed her 20 years ago. So it will be fun to wow. speak to her again. There's There's been a range of others, though. To be honest, some of the best ones are ones that you wouldn't expect. Like, you know, last year and this year, we interviewed a little girl named May, who has primary immunodeficiency syndrome. And so essentially her immune system doesn't work. And she was five last year, she was six this year, and listening to her really inspires you to sort of, you know, pull your head out of the sand, do some do some good communication of science and get people understanding why things like vaccines are important. Do you have a kind so, of white whale, like someone who you, <laughs> who you haven't been able to get onto the show who yeah. you just love to speak to? Yeah, look, I've been asking your your producer, Elizabeth, for a while now to get me Arnold Schwarzenegger because of all the, the climate stuff that he did in um, in California. And, and look, it's got nothing to do with the films, nothing to do with the films at all. You know, I, don't, I haven't seen any of his films. I really don't care about his films. You know, I don't care if he's going to be back. I, I just want to get him on the show and talk about science. So, you know, if he's listening, you know, there's an open invitation, buddy. Get in the chopper. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, Geraldine. I love it. So supposing Arnie can't make it, who else uh, do you have lined up in the coming weeks to celebrate 30 years? Yeah, so this week is going to be a really interesting one. This week we're doing something that's been very popular called our 20 PhDs in 20 Minutes program. So I will, in a crazy fit of stupidity, interview 20 researchers in just 20 minutes. This has been really successful on the show over the last year. We've been doing this. It gives a lot of people a, a taste of a variety of science. And then the following week we'll have uh, Jocelyn Bell, who I, who I mentioned, but also a guy named Terry Verts. Terry Verts is one of the last uh, pilots of the Space Shuttle program, and he spent a lot of time on the International Space Station. And one of the reasons he's so interesting at the moment is because when he was on the ISS, one of the Soyuz rockets for Russia exploded on the launch pad, and he couldn't come home. So he was isolated up there for quite a few months. And he's written quite a lot about this and the experience because at the moment we're all isolated. And the, the funny thing is, of course, he actually wanted to come back down to Earth. I suspect uh, the two astronauts who just came back uh, earlier this morning from the ISS were probably happy to stay up there because, you know, it's not, not much better down here. But yeah. he didn't have a choice at the time. They really, if they left the station, it would have been abandoned. And that would have meant that the station would have had to be shut down, which would have been a huge loss. So he will be on. And um, he's, he's a great, great person to talk to. He's He's got a book coming out, did a lot of amazing photography when he, he was on the ISS. So some really good guests. And, of course, then leading up to Radiothon, which we're pretty excited about. 
What a month, huh? <laughs> well, uh, you can catch Einstein and Gogo every Sunday morning at 11am on Triple R and also on demand. Uh, this month celebrates 30 years on the air with, as Dr Shane says, a series of high-profile guests and a 20 PhDs in 20 minutes special. And uh, we've been lucky to chat with Dr Shane uh, ahead of all the landmark shows. Thanks very much, Dr Shane. Thanks, guys. Have a good morning. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Loving Captivity is a new six-by-six-minute romantic comedy web series that explores the new world, dating at a distance. The series was developed during COVID-19 lockdown and produced as stage three restrictions were eased in Victoria. And on the line to tell us about the show is its co-writer, co-producer and director, Libby Butler. Morning, Libby. Morning. Thanks for having me, guys. Our pleasure. Uh, you've described the show as a, a love letter to the pandemic. What? How did it come to be? What is it? Uh, well, yeah, as you said, it's a, a rom-com web series kind of told in small mini bites, which we um, thought would be appropriate and also the only way that we could um, afford to film anything of our own. Um, but it kind of came about uh, I had a heap of romantic unluck across um, the first half of 2020 and um, I I was just basically looking for to kind of give myself some hope that something might something great might actually happen and actually work out and live happily ever after, which is like incredibly pathetic. But um, I I was just I was just so tired of like being dumped um, or not being or not being liked, and so I was like, I'm going to write myself a happy ending, and um, I kind of did that. So it was it seems to have worked out <laughs> on yeah. screen anyway. <laughs> Uh, uh, so you, you you would say you're romantic at heart? You love romantic comedies? Yes, 100%. I am totally a romantic at heart. Um, my first kiss uh, when I was 14, basically I took a guy into the woods at music camp and um, <laughs> said, let's do this like in the movies, and then I made him throw his hot chocolate down on the ground and then threw my own down on the ground and then grabbed him by the um, collar of his, you oh. know, probably his polo shirt and said, kiss me, you fool. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> Which is that's incredibly pathetic. But, no, um, it's not. It's amazing. I love it, and you love that you love telling the story. <laughs> yeah, like I've been waiting to tell that story my whole life, so I'm, really, I'm glad I kind of kept that for the breakfasters. Um, but yes, yeah, so I am a long-time romantic, and um, it can be hard for people like us out there. So I wrote this show for us. Mm. And do you think are you represented on screen? Would you say? Uh, just slightly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much just wrote myself into that story and, <laughs> and just cast a goddess instead of myself. So that's um, Christy Whelan Brown, who plays a very much a version of me. Mm. Yeah. Uh, t- tell us about um, the actual shooting of it and how difficult it is. You know, was it shot in your house? Was there social distancing? Yeah, sure. what- Absolutely. So there was all that kind of stuff. I think. As Lewis Mulholland, uh, my co-creator, and I were writing it, we wrote it over Zoom and text message and things. Um, But as it kind of came closer to production, I think it was just like a snowball, obviously, and we were like, oh, God, we're actually going to make this. And um, we kind of picked a time in May, which was at the end of the six-week state of disaster, the first state of disaster. And um, thank God restrictions kind of eased just as we started to film. But we made sure we basically filmed um, all of Ali's scenes in my house and all of Joe's scenes in Lewis's share house, um, and they only meet up for one scene, like right at the end. Obviously, um, mm. it's a happy ending, you guys. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we can't, we filmed just in our own houses. We had a very very minimal crew. 
the re- the only reason that I really directed is because we wanted to keep staff down. Um, so I didn't want to get someone else in to direct. Um, I cast my daughter again because she was part of my infected circle, so I didn't have to worry about that. And she was already in my house anyway, so <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to get rid of her. Um, <laughs> And and yeah, we kept it to just the two, basically the, just the two characters uh, talking over the phone because a that's what we wanted to focus on, like a really small story, um, mm. but also because of all the restrictions. And yeah, there was hand sanitizer everywhere. Um, we yeah made sure only five people were in the house at any one time, and then the rest of them were in the garage. Uh, like there was a there's been a few kind of pandemic. Um, things that have come out um and quite often it'll be i'm not fans of them because there's a lot of looking at someone looking at themselves on a screen there's a lot of double screen action do you know what i mean like whereas this is like sure someone's having a you know talking to each other on facetime but we're not on facetime with them um was that like a conscious decision to do that very considered choice. Um, obviously, we considered doing Zoom and picture-in-picture stuff, um, but I think it was like during the tech recce, and I was obviously le- I was such a baby director learning about what a close-up and a mid-shot was. Um, but yeah, we kind of just realised that we could probably shoot it using split screens more effectively uh, than using Zoom. And at that point, we were all just so over Zoom and Skype, and I just didn't want to keep. Um, just, I just didn't want to keep seeing life in that way. Yeah. Um, and I was a big fan of things like we watched like, um, uh, When Harry Met Sally and there's that kind of pivotal scene where they're on the phone together in bed watching Casablanca or something or the way we were. And um, I think that kind of turned it around. We were like, yeah, that's the kind of thing we could utilise effectively mm. to keep because to, it can be a real chemistry killer, I think, the Zoom. Yes. Yeah, whereas... Um, that was, you know, if we didn't get the intimacy in this show, we were done for. I've had yeah. so many friends having um, romantic problems during this time. So whether it was, you know, being dumped in isolation or uh, just trying to date in isolation or, or get some action. Uh, do you reckon <laughs> there's anything that people could take away, to, some, some tips or some hopefulness that they could take away from this series while we're, yeah. while we're headed into stage four? I think um, the, the, the big thing for me writing this was that sometimes physical intimacy, you can get really excited by the zing and meeting someone and you give in to a special sleepover maybe too quickly, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is the way I describe it to my daughter. So that's kind of like the, the language that I'm using now. Um, but I, I think it was just something about becoming friends first and actually getting to know each other um, that I took away from lockdown and that it was really nice to, you know, to become friends with people and... Um, rather than just jumping straight to physical intimacy. And so hopefully that leads you to a stronger relationship in the end once lockdown comes out. Mm. And mum's owned is a neologism. <laughs> it's a, I think it's a Libbyism. I don't know. Maybe I stole it from someone in a dream. Um, but, yeah, I, I often have felt, um, and maybe that's my own stuff, but I have often felt mum's owned. Like people seem to be able to tell me their secrets and, um but then just want to be friends rather than want to kiss me. So maybe I should stop saying kiss me before. I don't know. Um, and do you know if any of your exes have seen the show? They have. I have had. Um, I have had a lot of calls from ex-boyfriends. <laughs> really? What's the feedback? Well, you know what? There've been. There's look. There's a few that haven't called, but they're watching everything you know you yeah, can see yeah. um 
which is interesting. Uh, one, my boyfriend from when I was 23, um, just this divine man, has again messaged me this morning, like telling me what a goddess and what a legend I am, and I'm like, I'm so overwhelmed. Um, <laughs> it's so, it's so nice. Like, but yeah, there's there's been a lot of, um, I think. I think both Lewis and I have had a few exes come out of the woodwork, you know, wanting to see what our inner hearts are all about. Wow. Okay. Yeah. What a time. Well, the new online series Loving Captivity is available to view on YouTube and Facebook, and we've been speaking with uh, director Libby Butler. Uh, congratulations, Libby. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Triple R. Fee Wright's here to handpick a book title from a bedside stack. Morning, Fee. Morning, all. Good morning, good morning. I hope we're all keeping cosy today. Um, This morning I'm very excited to discuss uh, the debut novel by Charlie Kaufman called Antkind. It's uh, out by HarperCollins. And you may be familiar with Charlie Kaufman's name as he's a director and screenwriter and he's known for the work such as Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He's very well known for making films that mess with time and consciousness uh, pretty strongly. So I was very excited to read this. Um, I'm going to give a brief kind of synopsis and then uh, we can talk about all the fun little Kaufman-esque elements. Uh, So the protagonist, uh, they're they're called B. Rosenberger Rosenberg, but he is not Jewish. He's a sort of parody of a white saviour arrogance dude and he works as a film critic and a teacher and a historian. And at the start of the novel, he's commissioned to travel to Florida to work on a project regarding a little-known silent film, which is called A Florida Enchantment, which I looked this up. It actually exists. Whilst he's there, um, the man living in the apartment next door invites him to watch a film that he's made that no one else has ever seen. Incidentally, this man, Ingo Cuthbert, is an extra in the film that he's writing about. And he really is because I looked it up and he's in the credits. Uh, It takes three months to watch this film that Cuthbert has made, including breaks for sleeping, food and uh, going to the bathroom. And at some point during this screening, Cuthbert dies uh, and B. Rosenberger Rosenberg then decides to drive all the contents of Cuthbert's apartment back to New York because he can see a big book story and recreating the film, uh, which he believes is this, this amazing film from the silent era. Whilst making that journey back, the truck he's driving catches on fire and he decides to hire a hypnotist to try and help him remember the film. And that's the first 100 pages of the 720-page <gasps> book. Wow. <laughs> so straight up, I, Sarah, you said you'd read some really um, mixed reviews. Yeah, I'd say, I should have said scathing because... Yeah, then, yeah look, I will, yeah. I will say straight up, this is, book is really... Somewhat of an acquired taste, but I really think it's worth looking into. And this is not something you feel ambivalent about. You either think this book is fantastic or you think, who published this? This guy's just coasting on the fact that he's got an Oscar and he can do whatever he wants now. This book is nothing. Like, you don't, you know, like, eh, you know, you might give it as a Christmas present because it's just, it's too much of, it would be a risky gift 
<laughs> because it's just too uh, divisive. Like it's just, and it's the same with his films. People really felt like that when Being John Malkovich came out. You know, everyone was like, "What is it?" And you have to watch it. You know, it was a very like mixed views. Although the reviews I've said have said in the way that his films were enjoyable, though divisive. There's nothing enjoyable about this book, so I'm really interested to find where you, where you found the joy. They just said it was just absurdism for ad infinitum, infinitum. I can't say the word, but yeah. absurdism for absurdism's sake, basically, um, and with a character that was highly unlikable. That kind of seems to be the through that I've read. Well, he was he was a parody character of. Um, to me, he was like a mix of Larry David. Um, Tobias from Arrested Development and Nick Cage from Adaptation. So he has these elements of all three of these these characters that are pretty unlikable at times. Uh, like Curb Your Enthusiasm is a hilarious show about uh, a, a terrible human, you know. Mm. Um, like cause, just because someone's unlikable, I don't think that doesn't make it a good story. Um, and it is very, it, it is like Kafka on on LSD in many respects. But for me, it was the mastery of his ability to make something uh, so bonkers, then also feel really mundane. And this real sense of believability. So, and I occasionally find myself going, wait, when did he move into the sock drawer? Or hang on, when was the clown conference happening? <laughs> gotten the order of that, and there's, yeah, it's completely ludicrous. But then you'll just kind of feel, oh wait, hang on, when was the Trump robot? Or was that before or after the Civil War? Like, and they just kind of um, these mundane conversations he'll have whilst things are happening. So at one point, there's a time traveler from the future that's installing a chip in his head. And B goes, oh, this is a lot like this episode of Black Mirror. And the time traveller's like, yeah, that's really funny you should say that because that's where we got the idea. We travelled back, we saw the episode and then thought that technology is really cool, we should make it. And you're reading it going, yeah, I, I reckon if I was, like, you know, you know when you make small talk at the doctors or something, you know, yeah. that kind of kind of thing and so the whole time I had just I, I could see Daniel just, cackling I just yeah a yeah. book about small talk at the doctors <laughs> 720 pages of it. <laughs> but I was I was completely riveted it was like um an amazing book to read during the pandemic because I had this moment on Sunday when the big press conference was happening and I could hear Dan Andrews voice in the tv in the background and I was like hmm no, I really want to see what happens with Trump and this robot. No, I'm not going to watch it. And that was pretty much the first time wow. through this whole pandemic thing. I, I knew there was going to be big news and I was like, no, I really I really want to keep reading. I want to find out what happens next. And what comforts well, – well, I'm going to share now. I wish I had have known this at the time. It does all come together in the end. And you will wander through the weeds and I got lost a few times but then it all came together and I was like, huh, yeah, okay, yeah, I got you. I'm, I'm here. Um, it is an acquired taste, though. But the Trump robots, it's mm, – I'm not sure. <laughs> how, much did, how much did you laugh out loud? I laughed out loud pretty, pretty regularly. I would say maybe once or twice a chapter. It was – it was a lot like um, the style of writing reminded me of Catch-22 as well because it kind of had these sort of repetitive sequences 
where there would be misunderstandings in a very kind of catch-22 sort of way. Uh, um, for example, uh, throughout the book, because this guy's a, a film reviewer and critic, he full-on hates Charlie Kaufman's films. And every time he criticises his films, he falls into a manhole. <laughs> and it's just this really bizarre thing. And it's like, you know, the author is getting revenge on the character's free will to hate his work. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it is very meta in many respects. You know, if you could, you could probably make a version half the size, but I really enjoyed all the things that happened in the kind of extraneous plot points. So there's lots about a fake uh, comedy duo called Mud and Malloy, who are kind of this <laughs> Abbey Costello oh comedy duo. Yeah. So he's created this universe and half of it's real and half of it's fake. Someone's already made a list online of all the real films that are mentioned and books and TV shows that are mentioned. Um, and then also all the fake ones, like uh, Daniel Day-Lewis does a sequel to There Will Be Blood called There Was Blood. <laughs> you know, it's this really uh, deep attention to detail whilst also deeply kind of mundane whilst the bizarre is happening that that made me completely suspend disbelief. Um, so Do you reckon they'll um, make it into a movie? I think it would have to be a series, if anything. Uh, there's just... There's just so much that that happens, um, and a lot of it is kind of uh, extraneous to the full journey. So the section involving um, him inhabit the mind of Donald Trump, or Trunk as he's known in the future, <laughs> um, involving him receiving a robot version of himself, tweeting about it, and then having sex with it, uh, that is completely irrelevant really to the plot which is why I'm discussing it now because I don't want to spoiler it for people but uh if you made it without that I think people would be like but that's like the craziest thing we need to we need to see what happens with with all mm. of this but, how much I do you mean, think it helps if you're like a film buff because I you were talking about his references and the real ones and people say that there's lots of like sly snipes at real life filmmakers and at um cultural reviewers and stuff do you think that you have to kind of be in that world to fully appreciate that well there was a lot I, I mean I studied cinema and film at uni so I was like this is for me yeah but there was a lot that I didn't get and a lot that I that I missed um and there were I'm, I'm sure there was more that I missed that I'm unaware that I missed so I was never really into that kind of comedy duo of like Abbott and Costello, um, just because mm. I thought they were really mean um, <laughs> when I was in film school. And there's so many references in those chapters that I'm sure are relating to real things that I had no idea about. But then um, the whole book in many respects to me is mocking people that take that stuff so seriously yeah. because um, his B's favourite director pretty much is uh, Judd Apatow, and he spends ages talking about how amazing Judd Apatow is. And um, Steve Carell's chest hair has the answers to the cosmos. Oh, there you go. Wow. And that sentence I never really considered uh, saying on radio, but but here we are, folks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how, how many artists alive today get a legitimate-esque affixed to their name, you know? like totally. So it, should, it shouldn't be a surprise that a Kaufman-esque, a Kaufman book is Kaufman-esque. Um, but it sounds like a quite a wild ride. And uh, I, I, did want, 
I just want to say as well, you guys usually say, oh, you know, are you going to read other books by the author or things like that? I was 40 pages in before I started rewatching all of his films where I was like, yeah, bring it. So I've watched, reality is weird for me right now because I've seen seven Kaufman books, uh, seven films and read this book at the same time. So what is, what is time? Don't know. <laughs> yeah. A, a book so engrossing, it turns you off at Dan Andrews' press conference. What a recommendation. Uh, well, it's Ankind by Charlie Kaufman um, or Kaufman, um, and it's out through HarperCollins, Australia. Uh, thanks so much, Fee. Thanks, guys. Triple R. Good to have you back, Geordie. Last time you were on, uh, we did one of our favourite segments. Where have you been? What have you seen? One of my favourite um, segments too. Is it? Great. Yep. Um, just um, quickly, I'll start, if you like. Sure. Um, yesterday, uh, went to One Thaggy to pick up um, extra supplies before our lockdown starts today and um, came out came out of the store, snow on the car. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Could have been hail, but I'm, I'm going with snow. <laughs> Most likely hail. But, hey, it was snowing everywhere else, so maybe... Maybe that's what I got. I got snow. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the, the, doing a snowman in a pandemic. Like, and A, it would be super fun. But B, you know, would you put a face mask on the snowman? A oh, carrot or face sure. mask? Yeah, exactly. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see that now. S- some rubber gloves. Just uh, yeah. maybe a hairnet, whatever. Some yeah. PPE. Um, in, in Animal Crossing, um mm. It's winter at the moment, uh, so there's snow in Animal Crossing, and every day there's um, you can build snowmen, but you just get this like two balls of snow that you kind of just push around and push around, and then push them together, and it makes a snowman. But the snowman <laughs> has the worst attitude oh ever. Unless you make it perfectly, it just gives you like a really bad attitude, and it's gotten to the point where I haven't made a perfect one. In weeks, so I'm like, I'm not making you anymore. If you're going to okay. be like that, so I'm the like, snowman does the snowman resent being imperfectly constructed and yeah. lashes out, right? Yeah, he says, Oh, oh, is this, is so this he's all un- you've done? He's ungrateful, it? yeah. Oh, oh, if only you spent a little bit time more time on my head. Oh, oh, what's going on here? I, I can't stand I've it. got to say, the snowballs into the river. The premise Sorry. of this game terrifies me. Why? I, I don't know what it's what it is or what it's about, but it's every time someone talks about it, I'm like, no, thank you. Oh, well, come 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 visit my island. I was, and well, I was talking. Basto plays it. I was talking to her the other day, and she had this. She's like, I've just bought this statue, and I think it's cursed. And she showed me and my friend in the COVID group chat. Yeah. Um, a picture of the statue, and indeed, it looked cursed. I was terrified. I did not. Wow. Want, I did not want to have anything to do with it. I haven't bought any cursed statues in my game, but just <laughs> built resentful reckon... snowmen. It's got a mouth on him. They both yeah. sound terrible. Anyway. It's um, it's been incredibly, I'd say incredibly eventful. It's The world's been eventful. It's not so been eventful around here. did go for a walk around a park. There was a duck. Well, there was a, there was a, there was a, what's this family of ducks called? I should know this. A flock? A collective, well, all right, let's say a, the collective noun of ducks anyway. So <laughs> very young, very young. Anyway, this mother brings, like gets in the pond 
and and all these new ducks who look like they've never been wet are like petrified of going in. Anyway, one of them jumps in and the others sort of stay there. Then the mother's like, mm, uh, no one, not everyone's in here. So the 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 mother jumps out, or the the adult, and leaves this <laughs> stranded tiny duck. Okay, so they all bugger off. This <gasps> duck's trapped. Then these two other ducks come over and pick <gasps> it up and start thrashing it around. No! I'm like, Whoops! why oh would you God. tell this story on breakfast radio? This it was so and so. Jesse, who is was her face mask was a breast pad, so uh, which was stuck to her face. She she leaps in she takes the baby duck out of the <gasps> adult duck's mouth saves its life and then delivers it back to the family at another pond and oh. um and I, I was like well that's really beautiful but we can't monitor this duck for 24 hours no oh my mm. god anyway so it was <gasps> really it was two event it was supposed to be an <laughs> idyllic <laughs> walk <laughs> That is the most intense story I've ever heard. Why would you do that to me? Sorry. I've had four hours of sleep. <laughs> we, we rescued uh, – my sister found a, a duckling once, like just was walking home from work and there was just a duckling that had been, you know, left behind by its family. Mm. Um, so she's like, oh, well, obviously I'll take this home. And then she brought it home but was going out that night. Like, mum and dad were away. I was, like, 16 at the time, I think, and she just went, I don't know what to do with this duck, but um, <laughs> here, I'm going out. <laughs> so and we just put it in the bathroom and it just meant that there was just duck shit everywhere. <laughs> and then that night yeah. I think we were staying at a, at a friend's place and, um, anyway, we rolled over in the night and killed it. The, <laughs> I can't. I've got to go. <laughs> I just, I just can't. I just, there was like feather, like a the doona had like it was a duck feather doona, and it kind of went, oh, mum, and yeah. I don't yeah, know what I did think to that. You try this. and do the right thing. What about you, Shorty? Oh, I was going to talk about some nice things, and now they're all gone from my mind of this duck nightmare I'm living Where in. Been? What have you seen? Where have you oh, been? I've been, I've just, I've been working. So since Sunday, so um, in case people don't know, I work as a tutor for young um, young children who are having a bit of trouble engaging with remote learning. So mm-hmm. I, I work in homes, um, and I feel every day like I'm breaking the law. I just feel like I get in my car, I feel every day like I'm breaking the law and I haven't been pulled over once. So that's nice. So well, haven't you? I've been driving around working, um, enjoying the sights of outside my five kilometre radius. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, but you're not driving like after curfew or anything like that. No, I wouldn't, no, mm. wouldn't dare go after curfew. I heard a car revving in my street the other day after curfew oh. and I got chills. Um, <laughs> I wonder if that was just someone just in their driveway just going, oh, just what yeah, a I know, I know exactly who it was. I know exactly which neighbour it was and I was not surprised, but I was a bit scared. Um, but also I've been watching The Bachelor in Paradise, which is something I've never done before. Oh. Yeah. Um, I've been <laughs> – I was coaxed into it by Basto and my other friend Casey um, because they would talk in – 
talk about it in the group chat and leave me out, not on purpose, but just because I wasn't watching it. Can I say that my life is so wonderful compared to the people on that show uh, in paradise and I'll never be ungrateful for anything ever again. Um, And I've also decided to never watch reality television ever again as long as I live. Because oh, well, that's yeah, that's terrific. It's, it's, uh, let me guess, there are ducks in this paradise. <laughs> there are lots of animals. No ducks, though. Okay. Haven't yeah, seen any. Duck face for sure. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R, one hundred two point seven. Joanne Brecken is a writer and director known for This Dog's Life, A Decade On and Zelos, and he's director of the new rom-com set in Geelong called Paper Champions, screening as part of MIF. And to tell us about it, the filmmaker joins us on the line now. Joanne, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. Now, uh, Paper Champions began as a short film. Can you tell us about the film and its transition into a feature? Yeah, absolutely. So it started as a little short down in Geelong with Luke and Aaron, um, the same producers who made the feature. And it was so well received that they decided to turn it into a longer form film. So I was lucky enough that they watched some of my past work, brought me on, and then the rest is history. Yeah, so it it, uh, it explores manner. T- tell us about uh, the character and what manner is. Yeah, absolutely. So manner is um, like a... Um, I think it's a Polynesian term or Melanesian term. And it's so it's all about sort of um, power and integrity and I guess, you know, boiled down in manhood for Ray. So really like Ray is sort of his down and out photocopy sales assistant looking for love and his long lost mana. So sort of about him figuring out who he is as a man um, in order to, you know, win the girl. And I guess he kind of goes on this journey trying on all the different hats of manhood kind of just to figure out that he's fine as he is and all he has to do is be himself. And um, independent cinema, walk us through what it's what it's like filmmaking at a ground level. I understand the shoot was, you know, it's a pretty quick shoot. Yeah, absolutely. I think we only had 17 days. Um, it was very, very quick. And it has to be, you know, I think... Um, you know, it's always hard to pull budgets together and, you know, allow ourselves the time we need or, you know, the big Hollywood productions would have or even big Australian productions would have. So, you know, it's always about working fast. And But, look, Australian crews are so brilliant at that. Like, we are renowned for being really fast working. And I think then the essence is just, like, preparation. You know, I was so lucky to have Rudy Sierra, our DOP, who, you know, we sat down every weekend for about three months living up to the film to shot list and step through every single frame of the film and what it would look like so i think if you can get in and you can plan well then you can work fast on the ground and make it happen Mm. and how important is geelong in getting the film made and up and and how geelong appears in the film as well Oh, it's integral. I mean, it's sort of a character in itself in the film, and it was so brilliant that we could get, you know, Luke and Aaron basically got the keys to the city, and I think it's such a poster child for, you know, regional filmmaking where, you know, it's it's like a love letter to Geelong, but in the same way, it's kind of universal. Like, it could be anywhere. It's sort of nondescript enough. So I think, you know, it just shows that there are some amazing locations in regional Australia that you can film in have full access and make it look like, it, you know, it could be anywhere in the world and it looks big budget without, you know, having the budget you need to shoot in a big city. Yeah, and you're also Nad Gary Sweet who leaves nothing on the table. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
Nothing at all. Gary is amazing. Uh, we were so fortunate that Gary came on board, and he's so brilliant to work with and so generous. And, yes, I mean, the fact that he's willing to be in his knickers 90% of the film is amazing. Um, yeah, look, he is so, he's so brilliant. Um, you know, when we met with Gary, um, he loved the script. You know, he kind of is the character. And he just, you know, he brought so much life to it. And he was just, you know, all of our cast were so generous, you know, from John and Karen and um, and Genevieve and Gary having, like, a wealth of experience to then, you know, we had a lot of, like, lesser experienced cast, but there was just, like, so much generosity and so much collaboration that everybody elevated. And, yeah, having the likes of Gary was brilliant. Uh, the film includes a pretty great montage scene. Um, what do you think are the ingredients to make a good montage? And do you think every movie should have one? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think every movie should have multiple montages. I'm a, I'm a montage queen. Um, and look, you know, they weren't actually, there were no montages in the script originally, and I think I put two in in the end. Um, but yeah, like the big, the big build up wrestling scene. Um, you know, I think it's just integral to show that passage of time, and especially in a film like this where it's about, you know, getting ready to take on literally the mountain in terms of a mountain of a man, a wrestler, and also kind of yourself and all of your life problems. So I think it's so brilliant, you know, to be able to show that passage of time and that growth in the character um, in, you know, a two-minute grab. Um, and that was so much fun to film those. You know, we raced around on a weekend outside of shoot times, and there was this, you know, a skeleton crew we raced around to the Geelong waterfront and the back streets and the industrial area, and we just sort of pulled it all together in half a day. <laughs> so we were very lucky to be able to get it. But, yeah, I think I think they're great. They're so much fun. Yeah, me too. And, and um, how conscious of you as a director were you of showcasing the Polynesian community and its sort of um, comic sensibilities? Yeah, absolutely. Look, and look, that was that was something integral to the script, and that was something that really drew myself to it. Um, and look, at having then the likes of John Tui and so many of those brilliant actors, um, and Dave come across from New Zealand. You know, we really, really let them sort of lead the way in that. You know, like we we had rehearsals and we brought everybody together to kind of create a family. And so on set, people could just ad lib and improv and really have fun with it. So, so many of those lines and that comedy. You know, it, some of it was scripted, but a lot of it was just improv on the day, and it, it was their sort of, you know, bringing their culture and, you know, their worldview to it. It's a pretty different time to be launching a film into the world. How are you going to celebrate, you know, without kind of being able to march into a physical cinema? How are you all going to launch this personally? Yeah, look, it's been tough, and it's, it's sort of... Um, it's hard because, you know, we've worked for years to get this up and we finished it earlier in the year and then it's sort of just been sitting on the shelf while COVID, you know, did its thing. So, um, look, I mean, it's, it's so amazing that festivals like Myth have really just, you know, worked around and taken it online and made it possible for people to access the film. And in a way, I guess now hopefully even more people can see the film because it's virtual and they don't have to fly to Melbourne to see it. So that's so brilliant that this is supporting filmmakers and, and allowing us to have a platform. So yeah, look, I think we're just hoping for a really great festival run and, and there are a fair few popping up that are still happening, which is brilliant. Um, and we have Umbrella on board to distribute. So hopefully once, the world opens up again, we can take it to some cinemas and, yeah, get some bums on seat and people can enjoy it in the cinema. 
All right. Well, the new local uh, rom-com, Paper Champions is screening as part of MIF. You can go to uh, 2020.mif.com.au for screening details and all the rest. And uh, we've been speaking with director Joanne Brecken. Thanks, Joanne. Thank you so much. Triple R. Go. <laughs> last, um, on last Friday, uh, I was driving into Melbourne because I was, had driven in for work and um, – as I was driving, I quite often, you know, if there's something big in the sky, I'm tempted to look up at what it is, like just birds and stuff. Like just mostly it's ravens, but sometimes it's like, oh, there's an eagle or a hawk, you know. Um, this is a surefire way to lose your, your failure driving test having this conversation. <laughs> no, nah, just, you know, I, like when I do my checks, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I check my um, blind spot and also check for hawks. <laughs> Um, as I was, um, as I was driving, I, you know, off in the distance, I could see what I thought was a, you know, some kind of big bird. I got, got excited. Um, but as we got closer, I realized it was someone that was paragliding. Oh. It was a paraglider. And I thought, who goes paragliding in a pandemic? <laughs> um, so I, uh. The age old question. Yeah. So I thought about it for some time, ever since Friday afternoon, and um, I've uh, I've written a play, <laughs> um, Goodness. which may or may not answer the question of who goes paragliding <laughs> in a pandemic. Now, let me. There's two characters in the play, which will be played by you two. Yep. Um, I'll let. I'll just explain who the characters are mm-hmm. and then you can choose which character you would like like to be. So um, here we go. There's um, Gary uh, is in his mid-40s. He is fit and takes maybe a bit too much pride in the way he looks, but who wouldn't if he looked as good as Gary? Uh, his hair is dark brown with just the slightest bit of grey now coming in on the sides. He doesn't mind, though. Everybody loves a bit of salt and pepper. Push it. Am I right? <laughs> Gary owns a owns the local fish and chip shop, um, and drives a Lexus. He knows this makes it look like the fish and chip shop may provide more than just chicken salt to go with your chips. <laughs> but he doesn't mind. I want to be part- Justin. <laughs> yeah, his partner Justin actually owns the car, but the customers <laughs> don't need to know that. <laughs> Gary is quite intelligent. And some of his friends and family can't understand why his career is <laughs> is settled on owning a fish and chip shop. Gary loves running a business, but he also loves the outdoors. He loves the hours he works and the location. Just after the lunch rush, rush he always takes the opportunity to have a dip in the ocean or go for a run on the beach. His other great love is paragliding. He had completed a course a few years ago and at the end had walked away with a certificate and a large backpack with a parachute and harness inside. Um, Justin is Gary's partner. He's in his late thirties. His jawline is sharper than the knife Gary uses to gut his fish. And his eyes are as blue as the sea where the fish came from. Justin doesn't have any hair left on his head, but he's cool with that. 
Justin is a game developer, and thanks to a very successful little game involving penguins wreaking havoc in supermarkets, he's now quite rich. Many would consider retiring after the success Justin had, but Justin feels like Trolley Penguin is just one level. He doesn't know where the next level is. He knows that he hasn't clocked the game development career just yet. All right. So you guys. What a power couple. Trolley Penguin. (laughs) I think it'll be a great game. TM on the end of that. <laughs> Trolley penguin. Uh, so, uh, who would like to be Gary and who would like to be Justin? I'm Justin. Okay, that's what I had in my head as well. Oh, I'm so good. glad that worked yeah. out. All right, I'll, I'll choose Gary. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so have you guys got your, your scripts open, yep. ready to go? Ready to go. Okay, yep. Yeah. All right. So I'll just um I'll just I'll be the narrator. Set the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So the scene is set in their architecture designed four bedroom, three bathroom house with catering size kitchen and heated outside pool. Uh, Justin has arrived home from work to find Gary isn't home. Gary, I'm home. Oh, he looks around. Oh, and you're not. God damn it, Gary! You know we had plans tonight. We'll bugger you. I'm not waiting. Justin goes to the fridge and pops open a bottle of sparkling wine and pours himself a glass. It's not long before he's topped it up and he spies Gary pulling up the driveway in his Lexus. He notices Gary takes his paragliding backpack out of the back seat and goes into the garage to put it away before coming inside. Hey, babe, you home? In the kitchen. Do you want bubbles? Oh, yes, please. Where have you been? I just had to check on things at the shop. Don't lie to me, Gary. What? I saw you with your backpack, Gary. What backpack? Oh, you mean my paragliding backpack. Busted. Yes, busted. What were you thinking? I'm sorry. The conditions were perfect and I couldn't help myself. Uh, We are in the middle of a pandemic. Did you not factor that into your conditions? What's wrong with going paragliding? It's probably the most socially distant activity you can do. I don't know, Gary. I'm just imagining people driving out of the Eastlink Tunnel and looking up and seeing something in the sky and thinking, is that a bird? Is that a plane? No, it's a paraglider. Why is someone paragliding in a pandemic? I can't put my finger on it, but it just seems wrong. Seriously, who goes paragliding in a pandemic? Gary does. Well, Gary is a fool. (laughs) He may be a fool. But he's your fault. <laughs> they kiss before moving to the lounge room to watch Bachelor in Paradise. <laughs> oh the end. <laughs> Sorry. I, I don't know if that answers any questions, but um, <laughs> that's who I imagined the type of person is that goes paragliding in a pandemic. Triple R. been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the breakfasters which is the monday to friday breakfast show broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia feel free to get in touch with breakfasters via facebook twitter instagram or via the triple r website